the word of God is perfect. It restores our souls. So, Lord, I pray this morning as we come to study it, that it would be living and active, that it would it would cut our hearts, show us our sin, help us to think your thoughts after you, Lord. I pray that you would sanctify us in your word. Please sanctify us in the truth of Scripture. And we pray these things together in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, after spending some time bouncing from passage to passage in my sermons uh, the past summer, beginning now in the school year, I thought it was good that we maybe begin to settle down into one particular book. So today we're launching out into First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. And really any portion of our Bibles would be profitable for our study together, but I think First Thessalonians will be particularly well suited for our corporate life together. Commentator John Walvoord described the contents of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians with these words. He said this, In many ways, the Thessalonian epistles constitute an introduction to Christian doctrine. Each chapter is alive with vibrant truth, especially pertinent to young believers. The great doctrines of salvation by grace, divine election, principles of effective Christian testimony, and the coming of the Lord divine judgment, and joy and peace in fellowship with Christ are all dominant themes in this book. The epistles are at once doctrinal and practical, suited both to the demands of the mind and of the heart, end quote. And as I read this comment, I was greatly encouraged, noting this is the book that we'll be spending our time in together. Lord willing, in the Lord's Day gatherings Moving forward for a season, we'll be making our way verse by verse through this book. And I'll be doing my best to engage in what is referred to as sequential expositional preaching. Uh, Sequential, meaning that I'll be working my way through this entire book verse by verse. Uh, Expositional means that I'm seeking to explain or set forth the meaning of each passage. And hopefully, Lord willing, the main idea of each passage becomes the main idea of my sermon. And finally, preaching really just means public proclamation, proclamation and exhortation, meaning that we read the text, then explain the text and finally exhort the text or exhort obedience to the text. So this is sequential expositional preaching. And I'm convinced that this form of preaching is not just merely a means of preaching. It's not just one option that you may choose. It's not like there's just many different styles of preaching and a preacher may choose one. But rather, it is that the doctrine of inspiration and the doctrine of inerrancy requires that we use this form of preaching. You see, if the word of God is inspired by God, if it is God's breathed out word, and if it's entirely without error, and if it's absolutely authoritative in our lives as Christians, then it requires that we diligently study the word of God to make sure we understand its meaning. And it also requires that we seek to understand all of it, the entire counsel of God. If all of Scripture is inspired, inerrant, and authoritative, then we cannot pick and choose the passages that just suit us best or the passages that we like the best. As I've heard from my former pastor and mentor, Pastor Brian Hughes, I've heard him say this repeatedly, sequential expositional preaching is a safeguard for both you and me. Safeguard for you and me. And this is because it's a safeguard for you and that it, it keeps me from just constantly preaching the passages that I want to preach. It sort of prevents me from having a, a hobby horse issue that I just come to again and again. And it also is a safeguard for me and that the congregation cannot accuse me of preaching at them because really just the next passage is whatever the Lord has sovereignly ordained to be next in the book. And so if you want to blame someone, you ultimately have to blame God who is sovereignly in charge of choosing the next text. So it's a safeguard for you and me. And these are just a couple of the many reasons that I'm committed to preaching this way. But in some ways this morning, I'm going to deviate a little bit. This morning will be a little bit unique in that rather than jumping straight into 1 Thessalonians, into chapter 1, verse 1, it's really necessary for us to gain some context about this letter. Uh, so we might call this an overview message, an overview of First Thessalonians. 
Uh, I'd like us to focus on the, really the, ins- the inspired account of the Lord's work in this city, the city of Thessalonica. And really we'll be seeing how just a few men and really the preaching of the gospel of a few men upset this whole city. And so to really build a foundation for our future study of the book of Thessalonians, it would really behoove us to have a solid understanding of God's work in this ancient city. And really the the genesis of the church of the church in Thessalonica began with an apostolic vision given to the Apostle Paul in the ancient Roman city of Troas. And this vision is recorded in Acts 16. So I'd like you to open up your Bibles with me, if you would, to Acts 16. After the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then comes Acts. I'd invite you to turn to Acts 16. So important that you see with your own eyes what God has said in his word. But Acts 16 records the beginning of what is often referred to as Paul's second missionary journey. Now, this journey was birthed out of a desire in, in Paul to return to the churches that he and Barnabas had already established in his first missionary journey. And really just to see this back up to Acts 15, chapter 36. Acts 15, chapter, or Acts 15, chapter 15, verse 36. It says this, and some days, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. See how they are. So they're going back. The plan is to go back and check on these churches. Yet due to a disagreement over the suitability of a partner, our brother in Christ named John Mark, who Barnabas was desiring to bring along, Paul and Barnabas decided to split paths. Barnabas himself would take John Mark and really head southwest to the island of Cyprus to visit the church there. Paul would take along a brother named Silas and they would go sort of straight west visiting churches across Asia Minor, Derby, Lystra are just a couple to name to name. Silas, this character would play an important role in Thessalonica. He is lift, he is listed along with Paul as one of the senders of the letter we know as First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter one, verse one says this, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians in God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. That's the first verse of First Thessalonians. And we have this name Silvanus. That is the Latin form of the name Silas. Silas is maybe more the Greek version. Same person, Silvanus and Silas, same person. Silas is one of the senders slash authors of the letter of First Thessalonians. And in Acts 15, we learn that Silas was one of the leading men of the church of Jerusalem. He was a leader in the church of Jerusalem. And according to verse 32, he was also a gifted prophet. So Silas was a prophet, meaning he had the gift of prophecy, meaning he revealed truth directly from God to the churches. He was like the Apostle Paul in that way, although we would consider Paul more than just a prophet. He was also an apostle. But look with me at Acts 15, verse 40. But Paul and but Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then we come to Acts 16 and the beginning of Acts 16, a young man named Timothy joins Paul and Silas. Look there at verse 1 of chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. That's the Jerusalem Council recorded back in Acts 15 for these churches to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in their in increasing in their number daily. So Paul is going back here with Silas, strengthening these churches, and he really he really desired to bring this young man, Timothy, along. They decided it would be best for have him circumcised as they were going to be ministering, bringing the gospel to these Jewish people. 
And as we've already seen, their goal was to strengthen churches, but God would soon redirect them. They eventually made their way to Troas, which is really in the northwestern coastline of the Aegean Sea, what we might say present day Turkey, think northwestern Turkey. And it was here that Paul would have his Macedonian vision. Uh, Look, we'll see it in verse nine, Acts chapter 16. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, so this vision is what deviates Paul from his initial purpose of strengthening existing churches. He would now be taking the gospel to unreached, unevangelized people in this region of Macedonia. And really, this is the first time that the gospel makes its way into Europe, crosses over into Europe. And notice that in verse 10 here, Luke, the author of Acts, begins to use that plural pronoun we. He says, we sought. He, he's including himself here. So we know at this point in the journey, Luke joins up with Paul and Silas and Timothy in route to Macedonia. And Macedonia was the name of a Roman province, ancient Rome, Roman province that consisted of what we consider today be Greece, Albania and North Macedonia. Those three countries today make up Macedonia. And in this region, there is really two important biblical cities, Philippi and Thessalonica. Philippi and Thessalonica both exist in Macedonia. And the remainder of chapter 16 really chronicles the spread of the gospel into the city of Philippi, which obviously included the conversion of many Philippians and the establishment of the church of Philippi, and as well as Paul and Silas being imprisoned, beaten, and then later ushered out of the city. And this brings us up to chapter 17, and really to the city of Thessalonica. And I'd really like to read this entire account of the spread of the gospel in Thessalonica, verses 1 through 9, and then we'll come back and consider these a little bit more in detail. But follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 9 of Acts chapter 17. It says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Really, I think these are just exciting days in this pioneering gospel ministry of the Apostle Paul. It seems that, as far as we can tell, the Apostle Paul and Silas are the ones who make their way to Thessalonica, those two alone. It seems likely that Timothy and Luke stayed behind to continue ministering and strengthening the church in Philippi. So Paul and Silas, being the ones who were imprisoned, were the ones maybe that were escorted out of the city. And they made their way to Thessalonica. That's really a hundred-mile journey to the south west along the sea line. And what we know about Thessalonica, Thessalonica, just a little bit of history on it, we know it was the largest city in this Roman province of Macedonia. And it was also the capital city of Macedonia. It was founded by Cassander, the king of Macedonia, in about 316 BC. And he named the city after his wife, Thessalonica, uh, who also happened to be, interestingly, the half-sister of Alexander the Great. 
And this city sits in a really a strategic location. It sits right on the sea. It had a, a thriving seaport and where goods and commerce were able to come down through the rich, fertile plains of Macedonia and then be taken out to sea. It also had an important highway. It's called the Ignatian Way. Maybe you've heard about it. It's a highway that stretched from Europe as far east as India, and that ran right through Thessalonica. So goods and trades could come up and down this highway easily. And Thessalonica was there as sort of a trading hub on the sea and on this highway. And even up today, up to today, this city has always had a a vibrant population. Some historians estimate that there may have been over 100,000 people in Thessalonica in Paul's day. Today, the city names the bears the name of Salonica and has a population of over over 300,000 people. And you might recall that name, Salonica or Thessalonica, but that was the place of a famous World War I battle, the Salonica Front, I think it's called. But this is the city we're talking about, Thessalonica. And we find that I think Paul had two reasons for stopping in Thessalonica. You'll recall he passed through two cities on his way to Thessalonica, apparently not stopping, but he stopped in Thessalonica, apparently because there was a large population, But most likely, the biggest reason was that there was a synagogue in Thessalonica. And it was Paul's practice in those days. It was his custom and really his stated philosophy to preach to Jews first and then minister to Gentiles. You recall Romans 16, where it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that was Paul's philosophy. And that's what he did. He came into Thessalonica. He went straight to the synagogue. And over the course of three straight Saturdays or Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And his goal was really to convince them of of two things, convince these Jews of two things. One, he was trying to convince them that according to the Old Testament, that is the Hebrew scriptures, the Jews own book that the Messiah, that when the Messiah came, he would have to suffer and die and be resurrected. And that's what he was trying to convince them from the Old Testament. And secondly, he was trying to convince them that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. This means that the the Apostle Paul probably came into this synagogue, opened up the scriptures, opened up the Old Testament, and turned to various passages in the Old Testament explaining that Jesus, or that the Messiah, when he came, would suffer and then eventually be resurrected. And so I imagine he turned to passages like Isaiah 52 and 53. As you know, written 700 years before Christ, 700 years before this time. And he's there we find the prophet Isaiah prophesying about the suffering Messiah, the suffering servant. There in Isaiah 52, we find things like this. It says, His appearance was marred more than any man. And his form more than the sons of man. And as Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Verses 8 and 9 says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off, meaning killed from the land of the living. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Okay, so all these things, again, he was with a rich man in death. So all these things clearly point to that the Messiah would come and suffer and die. Additionally, in other passages, like we might say Psalm 1610, David prophesied that God would not allow his holy one or the Messiah to undergo decay, suggesting that the Messiah's body would not decay in the grave, that he'd be resurrected rather than just lying and rotting in the grave. He would be resurrected. He would not go undergo decay. And so it's texts like these that the Apostle Paul likely turned to to argue before these Jews that the Messiah had to suffer and die and that this Jesus was the Messiah. Laboring to convince him. Then verse 3 of Acts 17 says, This Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Um, And by the way, I think this is sort of a biblical model for missions. It's really, it's a preaching ministry. It's a proclamational ministry. He rolled into town, found the synagogue and began preaching. 
And again, in the synagogue, Paul proclaimed, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Meaning he is the Messiah. He's the promised one that was to come. He was the promised one that would take our transgressions upon himself and suffer bearing our sin. He was the Old Testament prophesied Messiah. And as you know, in the Old Testament, not only is the Messiah going to suffer or would he suffer, but he would also rule as a king. He would also be a ruling king, a ruling sovereign, which is really what the Jews focused on. They had fixated themselves on the fact that the Messiah would be a ruling king. And in so doing, they overlooked that he would be a suffering servant. You see, when Jesus comes again, he most certainly will be a ruling king when he establishes his throne on the earth. But in his first coming, he was a suffering servant, dying for the sins of his people. That's how he came at the first coming. And that's why the Jews overlooked him. They could not see it. And this is what the Jews, by and large, really just so enamored with the idea of the Messiah coming and, and throwing out their oppressors, their Roman oppressors, that they missed this. They failed to understand many Old Testament passages. But according to verse 4 of Acts 17, some of the Jews in Thessalonica were persuaded. Uh, we know that that would mean most rejected Paul's message, but some believed it. And some were converted to Christianity right then and there. Some of the Jews joined Paul and Silas and embraced Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And there's also two other groups that were also convinced. Verse 4 indicates that a large number of God-fearing Greeks also received the gospel. God-fearing Greeks. These were Greeks who had really forsaken pagan idolatry and were now in the synagogues seeking to learn Judaism. They were learning about the the Old Testament God of Israel. They were learning about Him. They had forsaken pagan idolatry and they were learning there in the synagogues. These Gentiles were there in the synagogue learning with the Jews and many of them were just ripe for the Gospel. And when they heard the Gospel and heard Paul pointing out these Old Testament passages, they just believed it. And many were converted. A large number, it says. The text also says, many leading women. Uh, Likely, this includes both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. Many believed the gospel. Many women. And this would just be a really a tremendous success with this preaching ministry. Through the preaching of the gospel, many women, large number of God-fearing Greeks, and some Jews were converted to Christ or won to Christ. But the Jews here became jealous, according to verse 5. Not only were some from their own number, some of their fellow Jews converted to Christianity, converted to Christ, but also a large number of these God-fearing Greeks. And just think about these God-fearing Greeks for a minute. They, they would have been Gentiles that were sort of won into the synagogue. They were being evangelized by these Jews, likely over a long period of time. And then here comes Paul preaching Christ, and these God-fearing Greeks just leave. And they're immediately converted. In such a short period of time, Paul won them to Christ. And it's likely this that consumed these Jews with jealousy And as a result, they incited a a mob. They sort of employ some worthless fellows from the city marketplace and set the city in an uproar. And they really centered their attack, according to verse 6, on the house of a man named Jason. Apparently, this is where Paul and Silas were likely staying when they were there. And it may also have been where the church was gathering during Paul's time there. But according to verse 6, Paul and Silas were not there at Jason's house for whatever reason. So instead, they seized Jason and some of the other new converts to Christ and literally drug them before the city's authorities. They, they drug them before the authorities. At this time in the history, uh, Thessalonica was what is known as a free city. It was a free city. It was within the Roman Empire, but it had a significant degree of local autonomy. And there was really a, a board of magistrates that oversaw this city. And, they, they, and as such, they sort of had a, a, a status as a, an autonomous board within the Roman Empire. And this is who these Jews drag Jason and these other Christians before them. And they make a couple accusations. They say, these men who have upset the world have come here also. That's what the Jews are saying. I mean, I think it's what a testimony to the missionary activity of the Christians. I mean, this was just within 20 years, 17, 18 years from the death of Christ. And according to these jealous Jews, the Christians had upset the whole Roman world. 
That's what these Jews thought. They're upsetting everything, these Christians. And now they point the finger at Jason. They say, now they're here in our own city. Verse 7, and Jason has welcomed them. And then they brought their real accusation. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. That's what they accuse. And I think that's quite an interesting charge. They said they all are not surrendering to Caesar. They're surrendering to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus himself was really no revolutionary. In his own day, he supported the rule of Caesar to at least some degree. You'll recall in Matthew 20, 21, Matthew records Jesus' statement, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So Jesus supported the rule of Caesar in a way. But in Luke 23:23, Jesus acknowledged to Pilate that he was the king of the Jews. He was king. And to these early Christians living in the Roman Empire, Jesus was their true king. He was their king, not Caesar. And this is the very same reason why Peter and the apostles before the Jewish council and high priest in Jerusalem refused to submit to their governing authorities. They could not give ultimate allegiance to any human authority. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29 So in sense, some sense here, this accusation of the Thessalonian, Thessalonian Jews, it sticks. It was true. The Christians were claiming that there's a high author, higher authority than Caesar. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. This is the well-known refrain throughout church history, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus Kurios. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And this is really an important consideration for us, I think, in just the moment in time we're living in. Uh, along with all Christians throughout the entire church history, we must recognize that, the, that there is authority invested in the state. There is authority in Caesar, but it's not an ultimate authority. It's a limited authority. Christ is the sovereign of the church. Christ is the head of the church. This means we cannot bow the knee to every whim of the state. Whenever the state commands something that Scripture forbids or forbids what Scripture commands, we cannot submit. We must choose to obey God rather than men. To sum this up, we might just say that Caesar is not our king. We have another king. Jesus is our king. And this was the affirmation that threw the city into an uproar, that the Christians believed that Caesar was not their king, that Jesus was their true king. And this brings us to verse 8, and the story continues here. Look at there with, with me, Acts 17, verse 8. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and they received a pledge from Jason and the others, and they released them. And it's not exactly certain what this pledge, or literally a bond, what it is referring to, but it has some sort of financial uh, connotation to it. Along with forfeiting maybe some means or some money to these city officials, apparently there was a certain condition that they agreed to keep. Probably something like they agreed that there would be no more disturbance to the city peace. It seems probable here that Jason and the Christians gave a pledge that the peace of the city would not further be disturbed. But under these conditions, Paul and Silas's ministry was now greatly curtailed. And they could not continue their preaching ministry. Therefore, they were forced to move on to another city. And due to circumstances outside of their control, these missionaries are now just whisked away from these new converts, the Thessalonican church. And so they are taken away from these, this early young church plant. And as just a bit of an aside here, there's a little debate about how long Paul and Silas stayed in this city, how long they were there. We know it was at least three Sabbaths or, or three Saturdays. That would mean at least 15 days. That's the shortest amount of time. But Paul may have been there as long as two or three months. That Paul stayed for longer is suggested by a number of things. Three things that I found that might suggest that Paul was there for more than just three weeks. Number one, outside of preaching to Jews and those God-fearing Greeks in the synagogues, Paul also preached to a number of just pagan Gentiles. That would have been people outside of the synagogue. And we know that according to the book of 1 Thessalonians. It seems that really the majority of the church there in Thessalonica had been converted 
from idol worship. Uh, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So that statement would not have been true of the Jews, and it also probably would not have been true of the God-fearing Greeks, because they were already, had already forsaken their idol worship. So that means there was a majority in the church who had just come straight from pagan idolatry. And so we, would, could such a majority of Gentiles, pagans, be one to Christ in just three weeks? Maybe. Could have been. Could have been that quick. A second consideration According to Philippians 4.16, Paul received two financial gifts from Philippi during his stay in Thessalonica. Uh, And this perhaps suggests a a longer stay as well. Philippians 4.16 says, For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So the church in Philippi, again, just a hundred miles to the east, sent two gifts to Paul during his time in Thessalonica. Uh, That might suggest he was more than just longer. He was there for longer than three weeks. And we also know that Paul was vocationally active in Thessalonica while he was there. In First Thessalonians 2.9, it says, For you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden of any of you, to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So in order to provide for himself, Paul engaged in business in Thessalonica. He set up a a tent-making shop, we might say. So for Paul to be preaching in the synagogues, preaching outside the synagogues to these pagan Greeks, receiving monetary gifts and also working to make money, for all of this to happen in three weeks, uh, maybe could have happened, but we're not ultimately sure. So it could have been there for a longer period of time. But just even considering this, I think we get a sense of the type of missionaries that Paul and Silas were. Uh, They were zealous to see the gospel spread. They were working night and day, preaching the gospel, making tents, laboring, discipling, preaching in the synagogues, preaching, preaching outside the synagogues. And then in the sovereignty of God, they had to move on. Uh, And they really, they just took up the same strategy in a different city. Look at verse 10, verse 10, next city here. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed along along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. So here, the Jews in Berea begin welcoming Paul's preaching. They were more noble-minded than the Jews in Thessalonica. They received the word, Paul's preaching, with great eagerness. And they began to search the scriptures to see if these things were true. They were opening up their Old Testament Bibles and seeing if what Paul was saying was true. They examined closely those passages that Paul was highlighting to them. And as a result, there in Berea, many were converted to Christ. But the jealous Jews of Thessalonica would not have any of that. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Okay, so here Paul Paul again was forced to leave. Notice that here in Berea, Timothy was now with them. It's possible that Timothy came straight from Philippi to Berea to meet up with Paul and Silas. And so while Paul was forced to leave, Silas and Timothy stay behind to carry out the work there for a season. Look at verse 15 with me. And now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. And so really, the, the rest of chapter 17 chronicles Paul's gospel ministry in Athens. We see the gospel spreading in Athens through the preaching of Paul's, from the preaching of Paul. We know that eventually, at least Timothy, if not Timothy and Silas, reunited with Paul in Athens. We know that they met back up there. And we know that although this ministry in Athens was fruitful, that these, there were these new, newly established churches that were on Paul's heart. I mean, in Thessalonica, the Jews had just persecuted 
Paul and Silas and ushered them out of the city. And the same group of Jews were now in that same city with those new Christians. Those Jews had really chased Paul out of two cities. And so undoubtedly, these new Christians in Thessalonica were under affliction. And the affliction of the church of Thessalonica at the hands of the Jews is evident in 1 Thessalonians, the book itself or the letter itself. So if you would, I'd invite you to turn there with me to 1 Thessalonians. If you turn to the right just a little bit in your Bibles, past Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians. And then what we find is I think of it as five T books in a row, all five books beginning with the letter T and 1 Thessalonians is the first of those T books. And really, we'll jump into the middle of Paul's letter here to see uh, to learn about these this church full of new converts. Look with me at chapter two, verse 13. First Thessalonians, chapter two, verse 13. For this reason, we constantly thank God that you that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. So these young Christians endured hostility, persecution, affliction from the hand of the Jews. And we know that Paul longed to return to them and sort of strengthen them and encourage them in the faith. Look at verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person and not in spirit, we're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope and joy or crown or of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. So here we see, we see here this Paul desired to come, but was unable to come. And continuing, look at verse Chapter one, uh, verse one of chapter three. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that none of you would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So from the city of Athens, Timothy was chosen to go back to Thessalonica. And we ask, well, why Timothy? Well, according to verse 18 of chapter two, Paul himself desired to go, but he was prevented by Satan. And I really wish we had more details about that, how or why. But somehow Satan made it impossible for Paul to go. Maybe and maybe there's a sense in which Timothy was chosen because Silas had already been flagged by the Jews there in Thessalonica. Again, it's quite possible that Timothy had never been to the church of Thessalonica yet. And so maybe they hoped that Timothy going back there would have the greatest chance of having a sustained ministry there in Thessalonica. But for whatever the reason, Timothy went. And verse two of chapter three informs us of Timothy's purpose and why he went. He says, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that none of you would be disturbed by these afflictions. Kind of explaining why they're going through persecution and explaining them that this is God's will for them and encouraging them. So this is what Timothy went. He went went back to Thessalonica. And then after that successful visit, Timothy reconnected with Paul in Corinth, according to Acts 18.5. So Timothy left Thessalonica, came, coming back to Paul. And Timothy brought a, a report on the condition of the church in Thessalonica. And the report really contained good news. 
good news that the church was standing firm in the Lord. Look at verse six with me of chapter three. It says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. So Paul was here relieved to understand the, the condition of this church. You know, they, were, they were standing firm, but there were some challenges facing the church as well. And it was for this reason, I think, that Paul thought it best to write a letter, write an epistle to this church. And based on historical evidence, we know with good confidence that this letter, 1 Thessalonians, was written in either AD 50 or AD 51. And at this point, at this point, Paul had only written one other inspired letter. That would have been the book of Galatians, which Paul wrote in about AD 49. So two years later, he writes 1 Thessalonians. And again, this is just 17 or 18 years after the death of Christ, about 15 years after Paul's conversion. That's when Paul penned this letter, 1 Thessalonians. And we can really begin to identify the problems in the church uh, that existed uh, through what Paul was seeking to address, namely in chapters 4 and 5. In one sense, chapters 1 and 3 are really a lengthy introduction to Paul's letter. Uh, He sort of commends the church for their exemplary living under uh, persecution in chapter 1. And then he sort of defends his ministry against false accusations in chapter 2. And then he... And then just by expressing his love for them in in chapter three, and then this brings us to his gentle corrections of the church in chapter four. Uh, It seems that this church, according again to what the contents of chapter four and five, the church needed correction in regards to sexual purity. They also needed sharpening in terms of their love for one another and also their diligence in regards to their daily work. Some of them were not engaging in work. In a large part, this resulted from confusion about Christ's future return. Uh, Therefore, we find in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4, really an extended discussion on the rapture. It seems that some of these uh, Christians in Thessalonica uh, were beginning to die. Some had passed away and the other Christians began to think that they missed out on the Lord's coming. They died and they missed it. And so Paul explains to them that is not the case. And we find in those verses, 13 through 18, some of the clearest teaching in our Bibles on the rapture. In chapter five, Paul continued to correct the church's eschatology. That is their belief about future things. He instructed them regarding the future day of the Lord. That's what we might refer to as the tribulation period. And in verses 12 and 13 of chapter five, he also instructs them on their obligation to to their spiritual leaders, to their authorities in the church. And then he just sort of closes with just a number of exhortations on engaging just various aspects of the Christian's duty that he wanted to explain to them. And so being that Paul is writing to a thriving yet newly established church, really the whole letter is just immensely practical for us. And it provides great insight into Paul's heart for local churches and the issues that he addressed in the church in Thessalonica are issues that were priorities for him. They were important to him, and therefore I think they should be priorities for us as well. We should understand these things. See, in this church, the church of Thessalonica, we find a, a healthy but young church. A church that has been founded on the truth of the gospel. A church that's even active in evangelism and is really passionate about the truth. And so in some ways, it's a model church for us. But in other ways, this church needed correction. They were a work in progress, we might say. They were a a collection of redeemed sinners who were growing together in Christ's likeness. And they needed this Holy Spirit inspired apostolic word penned by the Apostle Paul, but ultimately coming from God himself to really renew their thinking, renew their minds. They needed to conform their way of thinking to God's way of thinking. And really the same is always true of us. That is always true of us. We're constantly need, in need of renewing our minds to the truth. And so as an apostle of Jesus Christ, that is one uniquely chosen by God, Paul wrote a letter to address a particular church. But it is the will of God that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ 
the entire church understand and be sanctified by this inspired, inerrant epistle. And, and so that is what we're setting out to do here. It's our desire that we would be changed and sanctified, made more like Christ by this letter. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, that's me and you, may be equipped for every good work. The word of God, when we understand it, when we believe it, when we appropriate it into our life, it equips us for every good work. And so First Thessalonians is inspired by God and profitable for our teaching, for our reproof, for our correction, and for our training in righteousness. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to immerse ourselves in this book in the weeks ahead. We're, we're going to meditate on this inspired letter of the Apostle Paul. And it's really my desire for you that you'd get the most out of it, that you'd glean as most as you possibly can. So let me close our time with this this morning by giving you five ways that you could maximize your study of this letter. Really five ways to glean or reap the greatest spiritual benefit from our time spent together in this epistle on Sunday mornings. And really, these are quite simple. Uh, five simple things. Number one, prepare. Prepare. Knowing that Sunday mornings are our Lord's Day gathering, I'd encourage you to be thoughtful about how you spend Saturday evenings. I mean, think about this with me. Maybe binge watching your favorite trilogy into the wee hours of the morning might not be the best practice. I think there's wisdom in us getting rest on Saturday evenings so that we can come to church alert and can learn from his word and engage in fellowship and serve one another. I think doing this will help us benefit from our study of this letter. So that's number one, prepare. Number two, pray. Pray that God would grow you spiritually through the preaching of the word. Pray that he would reveal areas of your heart where you are not in submission to him and that he would convict you and conform you to his will. Ask you to give you a greater and greater understanding of the truth. Pray that you would be sanctified through our study. And number three, read. Read. Uh, make it a part of your regular practice of spiritual disciplines over the next several months to read First Thessalonians regularly. Maybe, maybe once a week for as long as we're in this book. It, it consists of just five chapters, and you can read them all, I've heard, in 11 minutes. That's it. Just 11 minutes you can read this entire book. So number three, read. Number four, meditate. Meditate. That means let the words of this epistle sink into your heart. Uh, strive for your thinking to be conformed with God's word. That means, I think, practically do your best to rehearse and bring up these truths with your family or other church members. Think about these things together as you go about your normal lives throughout the week. And, and maybe as you engage with other church members in discipling settings, talk about these things. And, and I think this is an area where I can even grow in and, and both practice, but also encouraging you from the pulpit saying, here's ways we can talk about this. And here's how we can bring these truths into our lives. We want our conversation increasingly to be about what we're learning from God's word. In a way, what, what I preach from the pulpit, I hope just reverberates through us throughout the week as we speak to one another the word of God. So number four is meditate. And our meditation on, of the word of God, as I've said before, is greatly blessed by memorization of the word of God, which is number five. Number five is memorize. Uh, together, let's commit to memorizing a portion of First Thessalonians. You ask, well, why should we do this? Why, why memorize Scripture? Well, simply put, it's because memorization leads to meditation on Scripture. And meditation leads to spiritual growth. And ongoing spiritual growth leads to healthy Christians and healthy families and healthy churches. So ultimately, this fulfills our purpose together. My purpose and your purpose of seeing one another becoming mature or sanctified in Christ. Colossians 1.28, Paul says, we proclaim him, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man so that we may present every man complete or mature in Christ. It's our desire to present one another to God complete or mature in Christ. And so that's my invitation to you. Let's, let's memorize scripture together so that we can grow together. And practically speaking, there's just a few ways we could do this. 
Maybe there's one or two of you here are just going to set out to memorize the whole book. And I will just applaud you if you do that. That would just be great. I would love to see that. If you do, maybe we'll do some sort of evening gathering where you could recite the book. I would love that. But for the rest of us, I've, con- I've, con- I've created three different options for us. And uh, uh, I've created a handout that's somewhere in the back, I think, on the table. I hope you grab one before we go. Um, Really, in my opinion, chapters four and five make up sort of the best fodder for our, our memorization. So what I've created is really three different levels of, of difficulty and no judgment on which one you choose here. I think option one might involve memorizing uh, just nine verses. I think option two has 22 verses. Option three, something like 48 verses. Uh, so just just choose one and then challenge yourself and go for it. And then let's be rehearsing these truths together. Um, and, and again, no judgment on which one you choose. For me, it's a great win if I just get you to memorize one verse of Scripture, because then you're thinking about God's word more than you would be otherwise. And that's a great win. I mean, Jesus himself prayed to God, the father, sanctify my disciples in the truth. Your word is truth. We are sanctified. We're made holy by our understanding, our belief in our trust in God's word. So for this reason, memorization is a great tool. So there you have it. Prepare, pray, read, meditate, and memorize. Let's do that as we prepare to enter our way into this book and be sharpened and grow through it. Let's pray together towards that end. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for how the gospel comes and upsets a city, sets the whole Roman world on fire. Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you that this is a powerful gospel, that in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus Christ, When we proclaim it, it has the power to transform sinners like us. And Lord, we just even reflect upon the day when we did not know Christ and we were one of those who were dead in our trespasses and sins, blinded by the God of this age. But in your grace, you made us come alive spiritually. You caused us to be raised up from the dead, uh, the deadness of our sin, and you gave us new life in Christ. And we just give you all glory for that. We thank you for the accounts of how the gospel transformed cities, uh, brought people to faith in Christ in the book of Acts. And so, Lord, I just pray you'd bless our study of this book. I pray that it would be encouraging to each one of us as we wrestle with every, every verse and try to bring our lives in submission to it. Would it, just, would it encourage us and would it bind us together in love? Would we grow in our love together for one another through this book? And and also, would we be strengthened and built up and maybe even prepared for whatever you would bring our way, whatever affliction you might have us endure as a church? Would we be strengthened through this epistle? And finally, this morning, I pray for any here who do not know Christ. I just pray, Lord, even as we talk about this church, newly planted church, people converting to Christianity, we do not assume that everyone here is a Christian. Lord, we just pray for those who are among us who have not been born again who have not truly bowed their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and surrendered every area of their lives to Christ, we just pray that they would be converted. Would you draw them to saving faith in Christ? Would they come to see that Jesus is the most beautiful thing on the, that's ever walked the face of the earth and that he is what our souls need, that we need a savior. We need an advocate. And so, Lord, I pray that they would come to believe in him. Help us be a people that are active in our responsibility to proclaim Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.